Morning all. Morning. That's not really my accent if you don't know me, but I just practice that, you know, when I come to England. So, um, Father, thank you for the power of your presence in this place. Thank you for a culture of hope which has been so inculcated into this church by its founders and by those who lead it now. Father, I pray that as we speak about hope, that it will be birthed in us in an even more powerful way. And I thank you for doing that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love the the theme of the stories of hope. I think that's an incredibly important thing for us to be able to not only speak about but to find ways to nurture. And interestingly enough, um, I had preached this message in another way last year when I came to Kyria. And um, your pastor, Matt, has specifically asked me to speak it again because this particular woman has such a a call to hope and such a strength of hope within her. So I'm going to talk to you about this this lady. I want to tell you about the way that she was, she never let damage done to her heart destroy the hope that was in her. Now, I'm going to read the whole scripture. I'm not going to leave any of it out because I want you to hear all of her story and I want you to hear it for the first time. Now, I know that you will have heard about this woman preached about before. I know that there's a lot of opinions about them and I want to say most of them are absolutely wrong and have been absolutely wrong since the Reformation when ideas about her were changed. And so we're going to look at John chapter 4, verses 4 to 42. If your neighbour goes to sleep, you know, just jog them with your elbow. But again, let me say to you, this is a, a story of hope and life and strength. And I want you to hear it for the first time. Forget everything that you ever heard before, because most of it is just opinion and it doesn't come out of the Bible. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, if you recognise God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than your father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and I will never need to come back here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say, I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. 
The woman said, I, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship Him this way. God is spirit and it's necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When He comes, He will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that those who sow and those who harvest will celebrate together. This is a true saying that one sows and another harvests. I've sent you to harvest what you didn't work for. Others worked hard and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, he told me everything I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed these two days. Many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said for we've heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the saviour of the world. Now we've got very little understanding about first century Middle Eastern culture and so therefore we tend to interpret Bible stories from our own culture. And many preachers, you've heard preachers and they heard it from preachers who heard it from preachers who heard it from preachers that this woman uh, has all these husbands and that makes her somebody that's very immoral. And so the reason that she comes to um, get her water in the middle of the day is instead of early in the morning when the other women go out is because the other women won't relate with her and she has to go out by herself when she's not going to meet with them because they don't want to associate with her. But there is absolutely nothing in this passage or anything that you read in the Greek or in Bible translations and commentaries that says that that is the case. 
Actually, in my house, I've got three boys. They would have been wrestling. They would have knocked the water jar over or they would have drunk it all and I would have had to have gone out again. But this woman, the reason that she was at the well at that time is the same reason that Jesus was at the well at that time. They had an appointment. The Bible said Jesus had to go to Samaria and she had to go to the well. They met together because they had an appointment. Now, this woman represents every person, female or male, who has been uh, made to feel humiliated, ashamed, who's lived with the feeling that they're not good enough, they're not as good as everybody else, they don't have value, they're not cool, they're not worthy. All of those things she felt, but not because she was immoral. There's nothing there that says She's immoral. And Jesus, he's fine with talking to the woman in adultery and Matthew the tax collector and the guy at the gate beautiful and addressing their sin. At no point does he address sin in this particular lady's life. So, he, But he speaks to the issues of her unworthy feeling because he's a saviour who meets us where we are, not where we or anyone else feels we should be. Please take that on board. So females were a commodity in this society. They could be owned, bought, sold or given away. Divorce was just about impossible for a woman and if she did happen to be able to initiate divorce, she could never marry again unless she had her husband's, her ex-husband's permission. But a husband could get rid of his wife by giving her a certificate of divorce, by just saying, I divorce you and give her a certificate of that. And he could get rid of her. Um, she, she was, he could get rid of her if she was a lousy cook, if he wanted a younger model, if she wasn't having sons or she wasn't having children. He could just get rid of her. And in getting rid of her, there's no social welfare out there. The only way that a woman could stay alive was by being with a man. There was no other way for her to be able to survive. She couldn't start a business. She couldn't go to the government and ask for some um, finances to help her get better. Not only that, but in those times, and we see it in some of the stories that Jesus told them, we see it in the Old Testament as well, that if a, if a woman didn't have children and her husband died, she could be and often was given to his brother. And if that brother died, she could be given to the next brother and the next brother. She had no agency. She was given away. Now, when you think about the fact that um, in another case, we see a woman that was caught in adultery and she was about to be stoned to death and the punishment for adultery was being stoned to death, which generally only happened to women because men could have as many wives as they felt like having. But for the woman, okay, maybe her first husband might have taken pity on her and said, I'm just going to divorce you, I'm not going to get you stoned to death. Maybe the second guy could have said that, but five husbands are not going to let her off the hook. If, if she had been divorced because if she'd been divorced because of adultery, she'd be dead now. She wouldn't be at the well getting water. And so that's a, a very powerful thing for us to understand. Verse four says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And that was because of the appointment that he had with her. Now, Jews never went through Samaria. They always went the long way around because they despised 
Samaritans. The Samaritans, as far as they were concerned, were religious half-breeds who didn't believe all the right kinds of things. So they're never going to mix with Samaritans. But Jesus goes directly to Samaria. And this is interesting because Jesus is the she is the first person that Jesus told outright that he was the Messiah. When he said to her, when she asked the question about him and, and he said, I am, it's exactly what he said to Moses back in the day at the burning bush. I am, the person you're seeking, I am. And I am is God's name for himself. I am. And so he says that to her. She also becomes the first evangelist. But Jesus wasn't meeting with her because of what she could do for the cause. She was the cause. In his eyes, she was the cause. When he's talking to the disciples about the harvest, he's saying, you guys are looking out there for the harvest, but here's the harvest right in front of you, somebody you don't even want to speak to because you despise them. And that is a lesson for the body of Christ, that there is a lot of people that we say, I'm not going to witness to them because at this point they need to clean their life up before I can reach out to them. No, this is the harvest. It's not that far away. It's not that thing that we're looking to. It's the person in front of me right now is the harvest. The per- the person that I would like to reject. We're rejecting people who are the harvest. And he says, open your eyes, peeps, open your eyes. So he begins to address this deep gaping wound of shame and rejection that's in her life. Maybe she's been trafficked like Esther was and those other women. Don't think about this lovely princess, right? That Esther was trafficked. Trafficking was pretty normal for women in Bible days. Maybe she never had sons. For whatever reason, she couldn't keep a husband. She's constantly passed on to the next guy. She has no agency. She never feels good enough. The guy she's with now just wants somebody to do the housework and be a warm body in the bed next to him. And notice, Jesus doesn't address sin in her life. So At this point of time, he takes this conversation so seriously with her. This is the longest conversation with anybody recorded in the Bible by Jesus. The longest conversation. And it's a, a conversation that he's taking seriously with a seeker who's been who's had a really rough life, but who's never lost the fact that there is a Christ coming. And she wants to know him. So the pain in her life did not diminish her longing for God. Her heart has been broken. Her self-esteem is totally low. She feels used and empty, but she's also resilient. She's brave and she's determined to do more than just survive. She wants to know the Christ. Now, this is an interesting contrast because in the previous chapter, Nicodemus, who also wants to know the Christ, but is very afraid of people knowing about that, his, his longing to know is heavily masked with the fear that he lives in. So he comes at night under the cover of darkness to seek out Jesus. But this woman's got the courage to 
relate openly with him in the day. And they are transgressing severe boundaries. He should never even look her in the eyes, can't make eye contact with her. But he deliberately cuts across rigid traditions to reach her because she is the cause. She's the harvest, remember? Jesus doesn't feel the same way as religion does about women or Samaritans or any marginalised people. So in a culture where a woman's identity came from her husband or her father or, or a son, Jesus knows her as an individual. She's not just a supplier of water. And it's very easy for all of us, women and men, to sometimes feel like our identity comes from what we can supply. We've been reduced to what we can supply. Water, help, sex, money, babies, goods and services, advice. But Jesus sees beyond all those circumstances into who she really is. She's an intellectually and spiritually aware person. And so she questions Jesus very perceptively in this long conversation. And I've heard preachers say she tries to change the subject when she starts talking about where the Messiah is. No, she's realising that this guy is, is, is willing to relate with her and to talk with her. And so she's the first person he tells is the Messiah. You know, he tells her directly what he's never told anybody else before. Now, the Samaritan woman represents the outcast who comes to a place of belonging, as we all do when we find Jesus Christ as our Saviour. She's an outcast because of her race, her gender, She's humiliated and she's traumatised because she's been used by a string of men and maybe her shame is deeply rooted in the fact that she didn't have children or she didn't have sons, but she's an influencer. This woman is an influencer who leads her in, well, I want to say her entire city to the Messiah, maybe not the entire city, but a significant amount of the city come to the Lord because of her Jesus doesn't require of her to conform. And listen, there's another thing. If my husband had somebody that had, was, had a, a bad moral reputation and she came running in and said, hey, everybody follow me, I want to show you something, I wouldn't want my husband to go. He wouldn't want me to go. But they all went. So she couldn't have had a bad reputation because they followed her. They listened to what she said and they went. And so Jesus rewards the boldness with answers that he doesn't give to anyone else. More than that, he addresses the unholy trinity of shame and fear and rejection that has dogged her entire life. Now, the first thing, I'm just going to go back to Adam and Eve. The first thing that happened to Adam and Eve back in the day when they disobeyed God by doing what he'd asked them not to do was that they looked at each other and they realised they were naked and they felt shame. Shame was the first negative impact emotion that people ever felt. And then the next thing, they hear God walking in the garden and he has to call out to them. Like before that, they used to run. As soon as they heard the sound of his footsteps, they'd run to be with him. But now they know they're naked and so they're hiding. And then they hear his voice calling their name because they were both called Adam at that stage. Eve didn't have another name until she left the garden. That's another whole thing, but it's worthwhile saying. When they heard him calling their name, they hid because they were afraid. And then because sin isn't allowed to be in that perfect place, they had to leave the garden. That's rejection. And so at that point, 
an unholy trinity was put into the life of humankind, shame, fear and rejection and every one of us has lived with that ever since. That immediately comes up. We sh- there, there, shame and fear and rejection are an unholy trinity. The shame came from disobedience. But the thing about it is, even though shame and fear and rejection are determined to claw at our lives, determined to destroy the future that God has planned for us, determined to obliterate the image of him which we are created in, God does not condemn us in our brokenness. When Jesus spoke to that woman about her husband, about the men in her life, the way I've always heard preachers say is, like, he's top dog, Jesus, and he's like, all right then, go and get your husband. Oh, well, um, I don't really have a husband. Yeah, I know. I know you don't. And even the guy that you're with now isn't your husband. Do you know, I've never heard Jesus speak to me like that. I've never heard him condemn me. I've never heard him make me feel ashamed. Sometimes he said to me, hey, Bev, you're wrong there. But it's never been shame that that we nuance and emphasise words in a way that powerfully impacts our communication. So it's very easy to attribute Jesus' tone through the filter of our own shame and fear and rejection. But Jesus really listening to her and when he brings up the issue of her husband, which he knows is really the point, is with a deep love and an understanding. It says, go and get your husband. Well, I'm not married. I know you're not. And I know that the guy you're with now doesn't, won't even give you the dignity of making you his wife. I know that shame has enveloped you all the years of your life through a long list of relationships that did not work out the way that you hoped. And you are suffering shame and fear and rejection. I know you feel humiliated that nobody wants you, that somehow there's something intrinsically wrong with you as a woman and as a human being, but that's not true. What's wrong is the way the humans relate out of this unholy trinity that has become inherent in our lives unless we can be freed from it by Jesus because this is the point. Jesus never knew shame for himself. No matter how much it tried to be heaped on him, a rabbi healing someone on the Sabbath day, not washing his hands properly, having the temerity to be called, uh, to call God his own father, and then being spread out naked. He didn't have that loincloth. Being spread out naked, God, the creator of the world, spread naked on a cross, dying a criminal's death. But listen to me, people, when shame isn't operating in you, it doesn't stick when people try to smear it on you. It rolls off. And people, this is more important, people who don't carry shame don't shame other people. So... It doesn't matter if you disagree. You can disagree with that person's lifestyle. You can disagree with their politics. You can disagree with the things that they believe. But we don't, but we treat everybody, everybody's entitled to receive from Christians dignity and respect because hope and shame are polar opposites. When you hope 
for people, shame disintegrates. And the vilifying and the shaming that pours out of people who disagree, even in churches, is in direct opposition to the way that Jesus treated people. He didn't agree with Matthew, the tax collector. He didn't agree with the woman in adultery, but he treated them with respect and dignity, which are two gifts that we can give everybody, especially because everything in life wants to strip those things from us. Condemnation came when sin came into the world. But Jesus came to set us free from sin. And in the doing of that, the condemnation, it means that shame does not belong in our lives. It means shame doesn't belong in our lives. This woman had an amazing life. We don't know her name, but the Eastern Orthodox Church calls her Fortina. And Fortina means the enlightened one. Ancient manuscript says she spread the good news of Jesus Christ so effectively that she was given by the church fathers the title of equal to the apostles, which is a very rare title to get from the church. And tradition said that she brought so many people to faith that Nero had her tortured and she died a martyr. So this woman whom the Western church has looked down on ever since the Reformation as being immoral is revered highly by the, by the Eastern, by the 1500 years before the Reformation. They respected her, they revered her. And so, but even whatever her story was, Jesus was not concerned about her backstory. He's only concerned with her future and he's only concerned with your future to whatever your backstory is. He wants to heal your past so you don't have to carry the baggage anymore. He wants to make a difference. Shame and fear and rejection are those things that don't belong to the Christian. Did anybody ever see A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe? For those who didn't, it's really a, it's a true story about a guy that was part of the think tank in the war. He was very, very bright man, but he also had... Um, bipolar disorder and so therefore you know he he was he was just brilliant but he turned out to be a bit a, a danger to himself and his family and so he was put on very heavy duty medication which meant he sort of stopped being a person and he was just he couldn't live like that but he had these three specific people that he'd imagined one was a little girl one was a friend, a man that was a friend of his, and one was a man that was a spy. And he was always having conversations with them. But when he, when he realised the medication wasn't going to work for him, he, he got those three people together and he said to them, I am never going to speak to you again. I'm never going to converse with you again. I'm never going to interact with you again. And so he got on with his life and a couple of times in the movie, um, somebody, one person says to him, are they still there? And he looks over there and, you know, past that wall, the three of them are there and they're walking adjacent to him. He looks at them, they look at him and he said, yeah, they're still there. And then the other, another time a person says to him, how can you tell the difference between um, who is real and who is not? How do you know you're not making something up? And he says, because the ones that I'm imagining never get any older. Now, this is what I want to say to you. Every one of us deals with shame and fear and rejection. They came as part of our humanness. They're part of, of who we are. But Jesus came to set us free from shame and fear and rejection. He was determined to be free. But you know what? They're insidious. They're ugly. They, what was said to you in the playground when you were little, you're fat, you're stupid, nobody likes you, I don't want to be your friend anymore, 
Those things, you can be 20 years old and you can still feel it. I'm fat. I'm stupid. Nobody likes me. Nobody wants to be friends with me anymore. Or you, or you can hear it when you're 50. I'm 72. I can still hear it. I can still hear you're stupid, you're fat, nobody likes you, nobody wants to be friends with you. Whatever was said to you, I don't know what was said to you. I'm just saying it's the same as what was said to you when you were old enough to feel shame and to feel fear and to feel rejection. And when somebody knows Jesus Christ as their saviour, there has to come something in our lives that says, I'm not going to interact with you anymore. It doesn't mean that we can't look and see, I feel fear, I feel, I feel embarrassed, I feel ashamed, I feel rejected, I feel like they don't want me. Yes, we can see it, but listen, we don't have to operate out of that. We can operate out of the fact, I don't care what my mind says. I care what Jesus says. And he says, I'm accepted in the beloved. He says, I'm fully loved and fully cared for. He says that if your mother and father cast you out, the Lord will lift you up. He says, if people reject you and you don't feel like you belong, you always will belong in the body of Christ. You always will belong with the Father who loves you. You can always run and climb on his lap. But there has to be that decision in us that says, yes, I see it. Yes, sometimes I even feel the bruising of it. But I am not going to interact with that. I'm going to continue to do the thing that the Lord has called me to do and I will not back off. And if there's nothing else that you remember about what I said, I want you to remember that because Jesus loved for Tina as he was, as she was, and he loves us as we are. He understands the headlines behind our stories. He understands why that happened, the trauma in our background and the way we've been broken because of that trauma or damage or, or how people have treated us. But an encounter with Jesus can change us forever. And maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe, I mean, an encounter with Jesus when I was 22 years old as a married woman has changed me forever. I'm coming up to 50 years in a couple of months of being a Christian, but I'm still changing. When I first started changing, I ne there was times when I thought to myself, I can see I could still be a Christian next year and maybe the year after, but I don't know if I could still be one in five years' time. But you know what? The Lord just kept changing me and changing me. And here I am 50 years later and I love him more. I love him more than I have ever loved him. But the reason is because he has dealt with the shame and the fear and the rejection in my life. He's, he's, a, he's given me abilities and strategies to not keep interacting with that thing but be determined that I walk free of it. And the older I've got, the freer I've got. So don't give up. Don't give up that hope. We've all got our stories. God never intended us to be bound by shame or fear or rejection. You know, some people decide who we are based on what we've done or what's been done to us. But Jesus knows you and he knows where it all fits in. And he doesn't make the judgments that we make about ourselves or that other people make about us. Jesus knows the why. And condemnation, Self-condemnation or from other people drives us to keep repeating destructive behaviour and doing the same things over and over again, draining us of hope. But I want to tell you Jesus is the hope bringer. 
You know, back in the day when I was a young Christian, if somebody was being prayed for and, and the, the person praying for them, they say, do you feel better? Do you think it's okay? And they'd be like, I hope so. I've seen so many people, don't hope, you have to have faith. Well, I tell you, the Bible says that faith is the subject of things hoped for. Faith can't even begin to get a foothold until we allow ourselves to hope. And Jesus is the hope bringer. And hope works best when everything's hopeless and we need hope. So when things are difficult, when there's damage being done, you know, when we get a revelation that Jesus doesn't condemn us, we can learn to stop condemning ourselves. And when we stop condemning ourselves, we stop condemning other people and we can You know, I can always tell the depth of the reality of Jesus Christ in people's hearts when I don't hear them condemning other people. So an amazing, this is my my last point, an amazing transformation took place when Jesus met that woman at the well. She became the well. She became a well of hope just full of hope. And she brought hope to a whole city as the well. We can become the well where Jesus can meet people all over our cities and our towns, in the workplaces, in the shopping centres, in the malls and the clubs and the pubs and the play areas and the schools and the streets. We can be wells of hope where people can meet the one who knows the backstory and never condemns. We can be that thing because when it's happened in us and to us, it can happen from us, like Ben was saying when he when he was when he was speaking this morning as he was worshiping through us that it can happen through us. So when you meet somebody who's exhausted and thirsty, whose shame and fear and rejection has caused him to act in ways that you can't identify with, don't join religion in condemning them. Become a well of hope where they can meet the one that you met and the one that will never condemn them, but will take them. The water that I give you, Jesus says, will become in you this bubbling up, springing fountain of life. And for that to happen, we've got to let Jesus deal with the shame and the rejection and the fear on a daily basis because it's so insidious. It creeps back in again. And all of a sudden, there we are. We've got shame again. We've got fear again. And we don't even realise it because we think that's who we are. But dealing with it through our relationship with Jesus Bringing back ourselves, but in you I hope, Lord. That hope is the anchor of my soul. Dealing with it in that way makes us into a well. And when we become the well of hope, our whole town, our whole city will be changed. I tell you, because you meet those people and give hope and they meet people you'll never meet and they get hope as well. And so this is a message for all of us and it's a, and it's a, a, it's a prayer worth praying Every day, every morning, God, I want to be a bringer of hope. I want this culture of hope to surround me. Not positive talk, not positive confession, not you don't really have a problem, just deny it. No, not any of that. That The hope that says, yeah, this is the situation, but God, by His grace, by His Spirit, breakthrough will come because my hope is in the Lord and not in my circumstances. Father, in the name of Jesus, Yes, 
We see, Lord God, that we're surrounded by tumult. We're surrounded by stress and people are overwhelmed in so many ways. There's trauma on every side. And yet, Lord, You are the hope bringer and You said that we as the church are called to this generation. We're not called to try and get the generation back to the 1980s or the 2005s, but Lord, we're called to the generation of 2024 and going forward, Lord. We're called to a people who are out there, people who are overwhelmed with hopelessness and brokenness and trauma and and rejection and fear and shame. But yet, Lord, You have called the church to rise. You have called the church to hope. You have called the church to be bringers of hope, that the power of Your presence, Lord God, will be tangible and palpable as hope goes out into this whole region, out of the church of Jesus Christ, because You bought us hope and Lord, we have hope to give away. It's like the lighting of a candle, Lord. Our own light never diminishes because we're lighting others. And so, Father, let it be that the power of Your presence over the church of Jesus Christ is one of hope and not religion, one of love and not hate, one of freedom and not brokenness and captivity, and that the power of shame and fear and rejection is trounced on and that there will be breakthrough because You're the Lord of the breakthrough. Lord, let it be unto us, we pray, according to Your Word, in Jesus' Name.